Troy Coverdale is definitely dancing in September. Oh my. Welcome back to the game. It's hour two, the game after work. Mitch Fortner, Troy Coverdale, and Big Steve. No David G. I actually wanted to play this for him today because today is his and his wife Sarah's third anniversary. Aw, congrats to those guys. And, and I remember at their wedding, I mean, yes, they were sure. married on, uh, they got married on the 21st of September, and I remember this song specifically playing of early course. in their dance. Uh-huh. I went to, I, I was late, I missed dinner, but I got there after uh, K-State soccer <laughs> lost to BYU. <laughs> Unfortunately, that was a blowout. Of course. But I had a nice blowout ourselves at the dance afterwards. Sure. And it was a lot of fun over there at uh, Sunset Zoo is where it was. So, nice. Uh, he texted us earlier this afternoon and said that he's not coming in because I guess Sarah had planned something for their anniversary. Listen, I think he's kind of full of it and just kind of wanted to get out of the show so we could spend some time, extra time maybe with the family. Hey, listen, they've got the second on the way and those hours are counting down. So Here's the deal, like, those opportunities are becoming fewer and far between for them. You know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't think I'm a tough, I don't like call myself a boss, but a tough boss in any way. I, yes, I'm in charge, but uh, hey, to say, hey, uh, today's our anniversary. I'm going to take the show off. I get it. I mean, I've done that before. Yeah. I just, Troy did not, by the way. I just I, want to put that on the record. <laughs> next year, we will see. Because next year is number 25. Now that I just gave you some information that you could use to mm-hmm. your advantage. Yeah, well, next year's a big one, so. You got to plan something big. I already am aware of that, yes. You got to, uh, well, when, when's the day exactly? August 22nd. Oh, okay, so you got 11 I've months. I've got, yeah. He's got time. There's already something rumbling around in my head. I didn't know when to start talking. <laughs> if you let this song play, you got to let it play for a while without interruption, I think. Oh, yeah. So, uh, but it is hour number two, and coming up here in, uh, oh, 15 minutes or so, we're going to speak with Ryan Aber from the Oklahoman. Going to give us a lowdown on what's going on with the Oklahoma Sooners through three games. But, uh, well, here's the big news today in our little spot in the world. Um Wherever the uh, Royals Radio Network stretches, which is the largest network in Major League Baseball. Mm A little bit of a surprise, I guess, press conference earlier today from John Sherman. Yes. Who is the, uh, I guess you could just call him the Royals. Majority owner. Majority owner, yeah. Yeah. Principal owner. Okay. Um, And he announced, and I, I thought at first, honestly, I was like, okay, with the timing of it, I was thinking, you know what, this would be a great time to announce New stadium, downtown Kansas City. And honestly, most of the conversation this morning when the press conference was announced to the media was everything but what took place today. Now, there were some that began to maybe float the idea potentially, but everybody was looking at other things that were likely on his mind because there's two weeks remaining in the season. It wasn't a expectation that there would be this move taking place on this day. Yeah, and uh, well, what was the move, you tell us? Dayton Moore is no longer with the franchise. Literally, effective today, I will say this. John Sherman handled it exceptionally classy. He gave Dayton Moore the opportunity to address the media as part of the press conference and then spoke his mind. 
about what he's looking for going forward. He handled it exceptionally well. But Dayton Moore is no longer the team president nor in charge of baseball operations. J.J. Piccolo moves into the baseball ops seat from being the general manager this year. From that point forward, there's a ton of questions that remain to be answered. Now, I'm sure from the press conference, you'll have, uh, I'm sure you'll have audio mm-hmm. from that press conference mm-hmm. tomorrow morning on the K-Man Morning Show, but I got this audio, and I had to get it from a, a, a very reliable source, because it wasn't actually John Sherman who went to Dayton oh. Moore's office mm-hmm. to announce, to tell Dayton that, hey, we're going to let you go, or we're going to move on uh, without you, along with the program anymore, with the franchise. It was actually a minority owner, one of the minority owners, uh it was Patrick Mahomes who went in there and uh, ended up doing the firing on Dayton Moore. Here was the exclusive audio that we got. I still got the music playing. Uh, I don't want the party to stop. Uh, YouTube move on to Boogie Wonderland. But here's that audio from Patrick Mahomes firing Dayton Moore. Screw you! You're fired! Man, I. you know what? That's First of all, that's a boss I don't want to cross. He sounds like a really... Tough guy to deal with. Uh, yeah. But also, um, maybe speaking for some uh, Royals fans out there that just kind of got tired of all the losing after winning a World Series. And and this is the point of it that... Back to mediocrity. Well, yeah. And it rankled me when I started to hear my guy, Ryan Spielborgs, talk about this this afternoon briefly uh, on Sirius XM on the MLB Network radio cast because... And and understand, I know Spilly a bit because he's one of the Rockies TV guys. And he was discussing how this really is a surprise. And this was a guy who had done so much for the franchise and going through this litany of how he's such this tremendous person. And, you know, they won the, the World Series with him at the helm and he was in charge of this. He was in doing this. He was da 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 da. I'm sorry, we've had six losing seasons with this franchise. The playoffs just expanded this year. There are two more wildcard berths that are available, and this team played its way out of even being in contention for one of them by May. This franchise was faltering under Dayton Moore. He caught a bit of luck at the time that the development of guys like Salvi Perez, Eric Hosmer, Mike Mike Moustakis, exactly. As those guys developed in the minor leagues, even before he had a a real hand in their development, you know, he, he caught... He caught a a good time to be in charge, and he had a stretch where the Glass family ownership decided that, yes, that they would begin to bring in some of the veterans as well to help fill gaps, and it parlayed itself into a World Series title. But from that point on, As this team began to lose the veterans and put more and more into player development as where they were going to go with the franchise moving forward, you saw where the weaknesses were. And the Athletic did a huge piece last week 
on where this franchise is in terms of pitching development right now. And they had a number of anonymous sources that were filling them in on things that take place in the minor leagues. Things that are common with other franchises that the Royals are not doing in the minor leagues in terms of their development of pitchers. Uh, Arguments over literally pitch mandates for certain counts at the low levels of the minors. In other words, you have a 2-0 count, you're throwing a fastball, period. Never mind the, the game situation, never mind whether the fastball is the guy's top pitch or not, never mind any number of factors. No, it was a mandate for every pitcher in the low minors that if the count was 2-0, you're throwing a fastball. Those are the types of things that that do the pitching staff in, and do development no good. Because at that point, it's a top-down edict that is seen as micromanaging. But beyond that, this franchise has been tardy in truly utilizing analytics because for too long, the general aspect of player development and the like has been essentially based on scouting reports and feel. Well, those days are long gone in terms of Major League Baseball. The Astros don't win five of six AL West titles by relying on scouting reports only and feel. No, analytics are a huge part of the game now, and the Royals find themselves in a spot where they have used them poorly to the point that the Athletic noted that players literally on the minor league teams are essentially having to help each other out in getting the analytical numbers that they're looking for because staff won't do it. It's it, it 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 would be laughable if it were another franchise for me. I literally I would love for it to be someone like the A's so I could have a good laugh over it and say, oh well, those A's. No, it's my franchise that literally is a laughing stock when it comes to its player development, specifically its pitching development. Now, I look forward to that change in analytics and how it's handled at the minor league level going forward. Is J.J. Piccolo going to be the guy to do that? Good question. Because he's been Dayton Moore's right-hand man for so long. For a very, like, two decades, right? Yes. And so he's also got a hand in the flaws that are currently in place with this franchise. Yeah, I think if you're just real quick, I think if you're a Royals fan, you hope long term that this is a short term thing mm-hmm. with JJ Piccolo. I w- I am in that category right now, until I can be shown otherwise. Until I see something different, I I'm leery of this move. Immediately, Mike Matheny is on the hot seat. 
with this move. Immediately, Cal Eldred isn't just on the hot seat. His backside better be on fire. Because pitching development has been so woeful at the major league level, in part because, honestly, those two, coupled together, they're not analytics fans. They're pitch by feel. Or they're play by feel, guys. And this is why I never was a fan of the hire of Mike Matheny as manager of this franchise. Matheny doesn't want anything to do with analytics. He chafes at having to deal with development. Why did Bobby Witt not get called up to begin the season instead of waiting a month? Well, it was because Mike Matheny was buying into and believed wholeheartedly that the veterans needed the time to do it. Remember the grand Carlos Santana experiment? Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, Santana's still batting under 200 out in Seattle. No, Bobby Witt Jr. should have been on this roster to start the season, and Carlos Santana should have been elsewhere to start this season. But you have a manager who prefers veterans to a fault and is not a guy who has any hallmarks in player development. This is why he's no longer in St. Louis. This is where things went awry for him in St. Louis. When he took over the Cardinals from Tony La Russa, that was a ready-made playoff team. It was heavily veteran-laden. And as time went on and the veterans were phased out, whether through free agent contracts or retirement or electing to go other directions, as those players were phased out and younger players came up, the returns began to decline. And the Cardinals became a loser eventually at a point under Matheny's watch. Why? Because it was no longer the veteran team that he essentially could just sit back and autopilot. The Royals have never been in that situation under Mike Matheny, and this is why he was the wrong manager for them to hire in the first place. I cringed at the time. I have disliked it from day one because he does not understand player development and at the point that the Royals were trying, that made this move where you had Ned retire, Ned Yost retire, and Mike Matheny gets the job, everybody in baseball understood that it was time for a rebuild. Everybody knew that, and, and I did not understand why at the time Matheny was hired. Cal Eldred, no coaching experience, and you can understand why even a guy who has won a Cy Young, for crying out loud, is 4-9 and nine this season on the pitching staff of the Royals. I've admitted before. By the way, hey, look, we talk baseball once in a while on this show. <laughs> uh, big news happening. Uh, that, that helps out once in a while. I'm a Fairweather fan for sure, uh, losing baseball, and I've been... <laughs> I've been checking it out for many years and used to it as a Royals fan where, uh, yeah, it's kind of boring for me and uh, it's depressing. 
And when you had at least a glimpse mm-hmm. of proper pitching mm-hmm. in the 2020 season, the shortened season, there was no build off of that. And even prior to that, pitching was bottom sixth of Major League Baseball. It's been that way, what, five of the last six years? And that it's is been how, horrid. Yeah, and that's how you wind up with six straight losing seasons. Pitching still is the top currency in this game. Yeah, let's just hope Dayton Moore is just to start. I'm with you. Clean house. Now is the time to do it. You've got you've got young, exciting players on that roster right now. Now's the time to do some things and develop your pitchers. When we come back, we'll take a look at the Oklahoma Sooners with Ryan Aber, beat writer for the Oklahoma Next. We're now pleased to be joined by Ryan Aber from the Oklahoman. He's the Oklahoma Sooners beat writer for the Oklahoman, who now helps us preview the Oklahoma Sooners. Oklahoma gets the big win in Lincoln, 49-14, and uh, I'm sure it was a you know very fun day for Sooner fans just blowing out Nebraska on their home turf. But you mentioned in an article, like, the offense was far from perfect. They didn't exactly come up all roses. So for Oklahoma's offense against Nebraska, what was the good and what was maybe not so good about it? Well, the good, uh, first of all, they they mostly avoided turnovers. Did have their first one of the season really late in the game when the game was already uh, out of control. Um, the, The offensive line played a whole lot better and more consistently than it had through the first couple of games. And, uh... Clearly, Wanya Morris's addition up there was a big part of that, but also McCabe Tower played his best game of the year at guard and just really felt like that group uh, started to come together. And then they were able to run the ball effectively uh, from really from the start with uh, Eric Gray especially able to put up uh, another big day. So th- those were the good things. The uh, you know not so good things. Uh, Dylan Gabriel wasn't quite as sharp as he'd been over the first couple games, still had uh, solid numbers there, uh, and, and was able to avoid interceptions. The good thing for him is that even the ones that were off the mark weren't in places that were going to be intercepted, but finished 16 and 27, 230 yards, a couple touchdowns. Just wasn't quite as crisp as uh, he'd been. Um, so, uh, you know, a, a little bit of both, but. You know, when you have a, a, a day where you can point out several things that uh, didn't go perfectly for you on offense and you still score 49 points, that's a, a, a pretty solid performance for sure. Ryan, you mentioned that Dalen Gabriel, quarterback of the Sooners, and maybe wasn't exactly dialed in completely for this game against Nebraska, but through three games, has he been fine? Yeah, I, I think so. Certainly he's come, come through these first three games uh, – uh, looking pretty well. Now, he is not the flashy kind of player that uh, OU has gotten used to playing at quarterback. He's not Baker Mayfield. He's not Kyler Murray or even Jalen Hurd or, or heck, even Caleb Williams. But he's pretty accurate. He avoids uh, just dumb passes, for uh, lack of a better word to say it. And uh, – but he doesn't have the, the overwhelming arm strength or anything that's just going to make your jaw drop, but really solid all around. And uh, we saw him finally show a little bit of uh, what he can do with his legs. 
on Saturday too with that 61 yard touchdown run. That's not going to be the norm uh, for him to take off on a lot of uh, runs, but when they need it, they can uh, have that in their back pocket. Yeah, wide receiver, I mean, there's going to be names that K-State fans will recognize. Marvin Mims, of course, Theo Weiss, Drake Stoops, even uh, still being productive there for the Oklahoma offense. You mentioned to me like five or six weeks ago when we previewed Oklahoma, you're looking for somebody to really take that number one spot at the running back position. Has Eric Gray settled into that spot? Yeah, it really looks like he has. There were questions about whether he would be able to be an every-down kind of back. He's starting to answer that and show some more abilities to uh, uh, be a productive runner, even when he's not in just a lot of space. Now, clearly he's best when he is working in space, and you can take advantage of his speed, his elusiveness. That's when they try to get him involved in the passing game uh, quite a bit as well. But he's performed as well as they could have hoped through these first three weeks. And, you know, Marcus Major has really sort of uh, solidified his his hold on that number two spot, showing his ability to run with power in between the tackles, especially they got him involved in the pass again the other day with a touchdown pass from tight end Braden Willis uh, with a little uh, trick play there. But, uh, and then Javante Barnes, the freshman who I think I mentioned when we were talking a few weeks ago, he has had his best game, 13 carries, 77 yards, got some opportunities early in the game. I think he'll continue to get to some of those chances. They feel really good about their group of running backs right now here through the first three games. Eric Ray right now, 286 on the ground on 37 carries, a couple of touchdowns, averaging 7.7 yards per carry. Also looking to fill holes on the offensive line. The O-line looking pretty good? Uh, yeah, they they were really inconsistent over those first couple games. Struggled especially early to McCade McTower, the guard, transfer from Cal. He had struggled a little bit in his first couple games. But they really performed well on Saturday in Nebraska, the addition of uh, Wanya Morris up there at uh, one of the tackle spots. He had missed the first couple games with some off-the-field issues. He uh, didn't start, but slid in there pretty early and played the majority of the game. And it seemed like once he came in, that line really settled in and performed really well. Now, we'll see uh, how they uh, do against Kansas State this weekend and against these uh, defensive lines that they're going to face early in Big 12 play because Nebraska's defense is really struggling and has struggled all year. But you certainly saw some encouraging signs for Bill Biedenboe's group of getting back to where they were uh, a couple of years ago when they were uh, you know, one of the most dominant offensive lines around. Ryan Aber, Sooners beat writer for the Oklahoma, is our guest. Let's now look at the defense. Uh, Brent Venables clearly is one of the best defensive guys you'll find in college football, of course. But how different does his defense this year look compared to last year's defense? Uh, just night and day. You see the physicality, the aggressiveness, the uh, the way that the playbook is opened up. You know, their their pressure the last couple of years have become a little bit predictable under Alex Grinch and. That's certainly not the case with Brent Venables. They've got guys flying around uh, from all angles, and it really can confuse an offense, especially when you've got a defense that has that system uh, down pad. And, and certainly to this point, they've shown uh, no indication that they don't. It's just even with uh, probably a little bit lesser talent than they had a year ago, when you think about the guys that they lost, especially up front with uh, Isaiah Thomas and Perry on Winfrey and Nick Benito, uh, Brian Osamoa, uh, they are able to be a much more effective defense uh, just just because of the system that 
Brent Venables brings, but also the way that they've run it uh, to this point. And, uh, you know, they feel really good about their defensive ends, especially Reggie Grimes, who's put up sack numbers already, uh, eclipsing his uh, career uh, numbers coming into the season in his first two years. And then uh, Ethan Downs on the other side. So, um, you know, they're, they're really happy with the way that this defense has performed uh, so far and the way that they've reacted. Uh, when when things haven't gone their way a little bit. Looking through Oklahoma's game notes, the defensive numbers, tackles for loss, sacks, red zone defense, yards per play, scoring defense. I mean, you're talking all numbers, top 15 nationally right now for the Oklahoma Sooners. So I, I noticed in the game against Nebraska, Deshaun White, who is at that cheetah position, it's that hybrid position, you know, need to stop the run but also stop the pass type of player, uh, linebacker, slot corner. He was ejected for targeting, and then we saw Jared Canick come in the game. He was the number one recruit out of the state of Kansas for the 2022 recruiting class, and he was really good. Ten tackles, he led the team. Do you think his role is going to become much greater potentially starting with this case State game? Yeah, I think it's got a chance to. Now, I, you know, they still really like what Deshaun White brings, and I think he's going to play the majority of the game. But Jaron Tannock, with what he was able to show in his first really extended action on Saturday, was really encouraging for uh, the rest of his season, for his future to see. You know, you still saw some of that those those freshman mistakes. Was a little over aggressive at times, missed a couple tackles, but also finished, obviously, on uh, quite a few of them and was able to show some versatility, I think, that maybe puts him in a different category from Deshaun White, from uh, Justin Harrington, who is listed as the number two at that spot. So I, I think in the situations where Kanek makes the most sense, I think you're going to see him a little bit more than uh, he had been early in the season. I think his role's got a chance to grow and grow and grow. They really like him uh, coming out of Hayes and, uh, you know, had uh, pursued him even after uh, Brent Venables said that he wasn't going to go after any of those Clemson commits. Um, so there was a different situation with Canick because he, he said he wasn't going to go to Clemson if, uh, if uh, Venables wasn't there. So, um, the, Brent Venables eventually came around to being all right with uh, bringing him to Norman with him. And uh, certainly to this point, it's paid off well. And I know there's a lot of OU fans who are really fired up to see Jaron Canick's performance uh, on Saturday in Lincoln. So it's glaring obvious about K-State that Adrian Martinez has been a bit timid throwing the football down the field. 35 of his 41 completions have been for 10 yards or less. Uh, but in Oklahoma's pass defense, that leads me to my next question because we need to see Adrian throw the ball down the field, but it looks like this Oklahoma pass defense is a lot better from last year, at least so far, would you say so? Yeah, they certainly have. And I, I think a big part of that has been their their pressure up front and and making it easier on the back end of the defense with all those tackles for loss and sacks that they've racked up. But they're also covering uh, much better. You know, Woody Washington has has been improved from even what he was a year ago when he was probably their best uh, uh, secondary piece. And then uh, Jaden Davis has played really well, as has uh, Billy Bowman, who bounced around a little bit last year and never really found a home. And, um, sort of fell out of the rotation by the end of the year, but he has uh, uh, really performed uh, well for them at that at one of those safety spots. So 
Um, they they feel good about the way that they're they're defending on the back end, uh, but they're going to be some more challenges that are going to uh, put them in some more stress than they've been over the first three weeks, uh, potentially starting this week. But you would think that that would be a good matchup for uh, what we've seen so far out of what Kansas State has done offensively. Uh, it should be a good matchup for the Sooners. Right, Aber, Sooners beat writer for the Oklahoma and is our guest. So Venables is, of course, in its previous time with Oklahoma, has coached against K-State, but this is also a team, a university, a program that he played for and coached with with Bill Snyder. But has he talked about maybe what this matchup means to him? Is it a little bit weird to him? Yeah, he, he said it was sort of just another game and they're uh, got tunnel vision a little bit, but at the same time, he shares the importance of uh, Kansas State, that program of Bill Snyder and his development, and talked about uh, some of the lessons that Bill Snyder uh, imparted to him early in his coaching career, what it was like to play uh, for Bill Snyder uh, there uh, in Manhattan. and said that he'd gotten some text messages from Bill, uh, including one that said, uh, you know, go get uh, win number four. And then about an hour later, Snyder came back, I guess, after he looked at the schedule and said, but not this weekend. Uh, But so, you know, I I think Brent Venables has gotten used to coaching against teams that he's uh, familiar with and and certainly coaching against Kansas State during his time with the Sooners, the first uh, go around. But this is going to be a little bit different, and I I think there's no doubt it'll be a little bit emotional for him, Uh, you know, maybe – uh, if it was in Manhattan, it might be a little bit more emotional for sure, but um, will be interesting to see how he approaches uh, this game because, you know, as many times as you've gone through it uh, as an assistant, it's different when you're the head coach uh, to go against a team that, that means so much to you. So uh, we'll see how he uh, manages those emotions uh, this weekend uh, against the Wildcats. Well, Ryan, it should be uh, certainly a fun one. Primetime game, national television, K-State and Oklahoma renewing the rivalry. Uh, Ryan, greatly appreciate your time, and we'll see you down in Norman. Yeah, sounds great. Really looking forward to it. Have a good one. And that's Ryan Aber from the Oklahoman, Oklahoma beat writer. While that was playing, I stepped outside. It is, it, it's cool. It's starting to, it's, I mean, it's like, starting to turn. It's cool outside, yeah. It's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it won't be this kind of weather in Norman if you're traveling. It's going to be in the 90s. It's going to be warm. Yes, the game kicks off at 7, but during the day in old OKC, it's going to be a hot one. A quick break, and when we come back, number one, song of the day. Well... This one's a little bit controversial, but it's one of my favorite artists of all time, Elton John. I, I, I was going to say, it's been a while since we've had an Elton track. From 1975, it's called Island Girl, and I would imagine most don't know this song from Elton. Unless you're around from the time, but... Okay, thanks. I'm just saying, though, when you think Elton John, I wasn't trying to take a shot at you, but when you think Elton John, this is far from what you think. This isn't... No, it's this not isn't Saturday like a top night. thirty yeah. song, I yeah. would say. Maybe top well, maybe not a top twenty song. Uh, but uh, singer, songwriter, uh, pianist, composer from Pinner, England. Of course, collaborating with 
his lyrics writer, Bernie Toppin, since 67. One of the greatest music artists of all time. He has sold over 300 million records, and that's over six decades of work. In 2019, Elton John was ranked by Billboard as the top solo artist in U.S. chart history. In 2021, Elton became the first solo artist with U.K. top 10 singles across six decades with Cold Heart that he did with Dua Lipa. And in 2004, Rolling Stone ranked him 49th on their list of the 100 most influential musicians in rock and roll. And he's inducted the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1994. 31 studio albums, 59 top 40 hits, which is just second place to Elvis. And this is his fifth of nine number ones. It's from his 10th studio album called Rock of the Westies. So what's controversial about this? It's not the Caribbean inflicted med- melody. Uh, well, it's the lyrics. So the song is about a Jamaican prostitute in New York City. The story's vague, but in the chorus, Elton asks, "What you wanting with the white man's world? Mm. Black boy want you in his island world." Don't worry, if you're going to try to cancel Elton, uh, he's already done the canceling. He'd realize later on, you know what? That wasn't smart. Maybe back then I could get away with something like this. It was more, I guess, allowed. Uh, But when it was like 1990, he's like, yeah, this is not not a good song. I made a bad song. Mm -hmm. The the lyrics are not cool. Mm -hmm. So he stopped performing it. He has not performed this song since 1990. Really? That uh, far back? Yeah, in his uh, his Farewell Yellow Brick Road tour, which I've seen two shows on the tour, Kansas City and Omaha, shout out. Um, yeah, he did not play this song. Was not played. I went and double-checked. Did not play. I know mm-hmm. he didn't play it in Kansas City when I saw him earlier this year. Uh, but doesn't need to play it anyway to have a killer set list. Definitely doesn't need to be... Uh, included. So he got rid of it, axed it. Uh, Elton's decision to dump the song also, maybe because of the simple fact, you know, he mentioned, I mentioned earlier, you know, the song just wasn't great. Yeah, there's that too. Uh, because it came from Elton's really first disappointing album that he had had. Previous to that was a ton of masterpieces. I mean, Elton has put together just an incredible amount of albums that are excellent from start to finish. But this was also during the time that his drug use also just reached dangerous levels. And really, at that time, just none of his music was was that solid. This album, I mean, altogether just wasn't that great, at least in my opinion. Also, this was also around the time that he came out as bisexual mm-hmm. to Rolling Stone magazine and saw his uh, album numbers, when it comes to sales, drop. So, yeah, it was a rough time. To be Elton John, I suppose. Yeah. But look at him now. Uh, let's see. He is over 40 years sober. I believe that's what he said at his last show. I can't remember exactly how many years, but he's been sober for quite some time now. Quite some time. And uh, I would love to see him one more time, but that's kind of impossible at this point. He's only got a f- handful of shows left in the United States. He'll wrap up the... American le- American uh, leg at Dodger Stadium 
And I think uh, I think this weekend he might be in Arlington, Texas, but unfortunately, just can't happen. So uh, maybe after goodbye or uh, farewell, Yellow Brick Road, when that tour is done, maybe he'll do one more leg in the United States. But I think he actually he wants to wrap up the tour in in Europe, which would make perfect sense given. And honestly, from a travel standpoint, given his age. Yeah, I don't know exactly how old he is. I, I I'm pretty. It's, he's got to. Be, I, he's 80s, right? I, uh, no, 75. Still, well, it, it's along the same lines as Billy Joel now at this point, holding the residency at Madison Square Garden because it's home. If you've never seen him, I love it when he would, like, in between like lyric breaks, he'd be like, Ah, yeah. It, it, it reminded me of David G. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, I love it. Keep that up. I love that energy. Uh, but I am a gigantic Elton John fan. He is he is in my top five of all time. I really was surprised the other day when I teased you about Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting being on the PA and that you yeah, did no, not. I did not. Uh, to be honest with you, I just said I love Elton John. I'm a huge Elton John fan. I'm not actually a big fan of that song. That's like the one Elton John song I'm like, you know... Just doesn't uh, just doesn't hit. Not really my groove. Also, I think uh, Nickelback covered it one time, and uh, oh, that kind of maybe ruined it for me. There, yeah, that would explain a lot. All right, so here's the situation. I gotta go. Heading over to Manhattan High School to talk to head coach Joe Sharks of the football team. I'm gonna let Troy and Big Steve take you the rest of the way after a short break with a little "Ask Us Anything" hosted by Big Steve. Next. We're back on the game. News Radio KMAN. It's Big Steve, Mr. TC, Troy Coverdale. He was doing his little dance during the uh, game sports update there. Well, you know, I have reason to be happy. It's a good day. Yeah, exactly. It's a start. Moore is no longer with the Royals, and it's a good day. It's a start. All right, well, it is Ask Us Anything time, and of course, David G. is not here. But in the spirit of David G., I'm going to ask you the Ask a K-Rocker question he had this morning. That was, would you rather cut off a finger or pay the person you dislike the most to go on their dream vacation? Wow. That's a tough one. Uh, Pay them to go on their dream vacation? Yeah, their dream vacation. But we don't have to travel with them. I'm going to say correct on that because that is not... I'll pay, for, I'll pay for them to leave for out of my for, life for 40 years, <laughs> man. I, I mean, okay. granted, I know a uh, former football offensive lineman who essentially not off his finger to keep playing in a game once. Really? College game, Division II game, Colorado Mesa, hmm. main national headlines. Needless to say, there were plenty of jokes when he was an assistant coach uh, <laughs> around where I was. It was humorous. I bet. Yeah, yeah. yeah players, players loved him. Had all kinds of inside jokes about him being four-fingered. All right. I, I'd have to agree with you. I'd pay for their dream vacation, yeah. get them out yeah. of the life. Because, like, yeah, you cut off your finger, but there's nothing saying that they're going to, you know, not come back right. at you. exactly. So, like, you're down a finger, and they're still bothering you. Right. So, all right. Uh, if you had the chance to invent a country, what would you name it? Ooh. Is it the Dayton Moore is no longer with the Royals country? Is that is that the name there? Uh, no. Okay. 
Um, Tough one? Yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to think because, I mean, I mean, a portion of England is Coverdale. Right. I mean. So you can't name it after yourself. Right. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I guess you could. I don't know. Maybe just for the grins of it, Nickelodeon. Nickelodeonland. Nickelodeonland. Okay. You see, for me, I would name it something like super outrageous, like just some super stupid long name that nobody has any business trying to spell. Along the lines of, say, when they try to jam 27 letters onto a back of a uniform. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, got it. Basically, something where it's like it's impossible to spell, impossible to say. Just for the hell of it. <laughs> what is it? What is it from Superman? Mixiplex or whatever is Yeah, something like that. Yeah. 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 All right. Final one here in the uh, last 30 seconds, Troy. Which superpower would you not want out of any of any of the superpowers? Which one would you not want? Hmm. That's a real good one. Well, you got 15 figured out i would say probably not the x-ray vision i'm actually going down the same rabbit hole because uh you're giving literally everybody cancer the whole time that you're there you know it's one way of looking at it yeah so. yeah all right well mitch and crew back with you tomorrow Ooh, ah.